And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 5, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to guide us through your word today. Help us to receive it, to rejoice over it. Uh, convict us and uh, conform us, we pray, to your will. Father, by your Holy Spirit, transform us through the reading and the hearing of your word. Help me to articulate this clearly. Uh, give, give me the words and the clarity of thought that that I need and, and illumine all of our minds, we pray today in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, whenever I study history, I'm, I always come away with the very same uh, takeaway thoughts. Every, every time I study any period of history, uh, particularly ancient history or antiquity or the Middle Ages, I always find myself coming away incredibly grateful for the fact that I was born in the 20th century and not in ancient Egypt or in medieval Europe or even in colonial America. I'm so thankful to have been born when I was born. I know that we have romantic thoughts about what it would be like to grow up in a different period in history, but, but, but really I'm, I'm super thankful to be where I am. Our generation is far, far from perfect and our modern conveniences present as many temptations as they do comforts. But all things being equal, if given a choice, I would still far rather be born in 1974 rather than 74 BC or 1074, even 1774. Just consider the advances in medicine, medicine and, and hygiene that, that have made our lives comfortable. One of the most revolutionary things to ever happen was uh, when, when people in the West started washing their hands. Now, of course, God's law gave uh, us some uh, hygienic laws and and, and helped us to think about things and, and keeping things clean. But, but if you can just think of how many lives were saved, uh, particularly women's lives in the, in the delivery of children when doctors started washing their hands and, and what a great advance that was. In ancient Greece, for example, just to think of how, how different medicine is today than it was in the ancient world. In ancient Greece, they thought your body really uh, needed to be balanced among four different 
uh, what they called humors or, or elements in your body. There's two different kinds of bile, and then you have blood, and then you have phlegm. And so if you were sick, what that means is we need to lower the level of one of those humors so that we can get you back in balance. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do that is we cut you and we bleed you. Uh, and then you come away saying, thanks. Well, now I have the flu and an open wound and, <laughs> and I feel a little bit lightheaded. I, I'm not sure what that really accomplished. If you grew up in the, with, with the cosmology of the ancient pagans, you would be terrified to travel very far from home. There's so many mysterious and foreboding monsters out there in the world waiting to devour you. The Cyclops might be waiting around the corner. The Kraken might sink your ship. The Manticore, that lion with a scorpion tail, might capture you and eat you. Now, of course, Western civilization grew out of these superstitions and we came to understand more and more about God's creation to the point where we know lots of things about what's going on in your body and we know lots of things about uh, human biology that we didn't understand before. And we've got cameras circling the earth and cameras in the deepest part of the sea and we've yet to see a manticore or a kraken anywhere. We haven't found any. Now, it's assumed that the reason we have grown up and the reason that we now understand these things is assumed the reason for this is that we have evolved out of ignorance and we are now enlightened by the light of reason. And that began sometime in the late Middle Ages. We shucked off the scary world of monsters when we finally started using our heads for once. The ancients were just, might, might have had some things right on philosophy or uh, human nature, but for the most part, we assume the ancients were ignorant. They didn't understand uh, much at all. Uh, well, the truth of the matter is the real enlightenment, the true enlightenment started way before the 17th century. It was the growth of Christendom. It was the preaching of the gospel that opened up the way for true societal maturity and development. See, the gospel and belief in the triune God of creation put all of the mythical beasts out of business. It put the, the Greek and Roman gods, the wood nymphs, the fairies, it put the goblins all out of business. So once you stop believing in the Greek gods and you stop believing that the, the woods are filled with evil and mischievous spirits, that, that there's a nymph under every rock and leaf, once you stop believing that, it opens up the way for serious study and serious scientific exploration. The gospel put superstition to death and invited men to walk and live in the world that a loving heavenly father created. And, and on top of that, God's law provided the only basis for orderly, consistent uh, society. You, you can't have science, you can't have art or math or music or opera or astronomy if your neighbor is always trying to eat you, right? Cannibalistic societies don't build hospitals, right? You, that's, I think that's a given. I don't think I have to prove that. Um, if your neighbor is always trying to steal your stuff, you don't have an opportunity to go write poems, right? You, you don't have the opportunity to build society. You, don't, you can't write novels in a pagan world. God's law ordered society in a way that beautiful things could flourish. And now we have time to give attention to the glories of creation. We're not hidden and shrouded in superstition. 
And so it's still the case today that pagan societies, those societies, if you think of the countries of the world that haven't had centuries of gospel influence, they're still pretty much in the dark. They're still very, very backward. All the technology and all the modern advancement that they might have has been borrowed from the West. Now they might have improvised on it or, or uh, played with it, but, but they got it from the West. Only Christian societies, and I know this sounds awfully, oh, you can't say that. How can you say that? Well, I'm saying it. Only Christian societies have liberty. Only Christian societies have safety and human rights. These belong to us. These are ours. And though our, our society is now trying to shuck off uh, it's, it's Christian uh, uh, bearings, you understand we're headed right back into tribalism as we do that. You see, we're, we're now we might in, in a century have to worry about our neighbor eating us again because we are removing ourselves from our, our Christian society or our Christian culture. Well, uh, I talk about this because I want us to always remember that the Enlightenment wasn't the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The true light that's in the world, the, the new creation, begins with the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about here in the section that I read a few minutes ago. Paul is standing at the beginning of the history of the church, and he writes to his fellow Christians about these things. And we started last week on the section where he talked about how the law of God has been transformed and glorified and expanded and elevated in Christ. The law is, is completely, uh, it's, it's obeyed in Jesus. Jesus fulfills every part of the law and then the law is nailed to the cross with Jesus and the law goes down into the grave and then is resurrected with Jesus. So now we have a new law. We have the law of Christ and, and Paul is talking about how this law in Christ shapes our communal life. And then he proceeds from there to describe how the people of God are light bearers and how the growth of the church is going to shine the light in all the dark places and push back the dominion of darkness and ignorance. So last week we started working through this section where Paul is pulling out uh, laws from the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go in order. He's using his own logic and he's using his own rationale, which uh, He's organizing his thoughts differently by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but demonstrating what new covenant obedience to the law of God looks like. The, the basis for obeying the law in Christ is not just raw willpower. It's not just, you know, come on, guys, you can do better. Come on, fella, try harder. That's not the basis of our obedience to God's law. We're not striving to merit his favor or his grace. We are already accepted. We are already in Christ. We already have everything that we need to obey. So we're enabled to obey God's law because we're saints with all the riches of Christ at our disposal. It is our inheritance. You understand, you remember what it means to be saints, right? It means to have sanctuary access. Adam and Eve were driven out of God's presence. Remember, they were, they were pushed away from his presence. And then under the old covenant, there were all these degrees of holiness and barriers to true fellowship with God. God divided humanity between Gentile and Jew. And, and Jews were closer to his sanctuary than Gentiles were. And then within Judaism, with, within the nation of the Jews, there, were, there was another class. There were the priests who had more access. And then, and then with, among the priests, there was a high priest who had even more access. So there are these degrees of, of nearness to God in humanity. 
But now in Jesus, Jesus is the high priest. In him, every one of us is a saint. Everyone is brought in to fellowship with him. And all those distinctions are obliterated. So now that you and I are in Jesus, we have access to all the privileges of being in fellowship with him. That means we're enthroned. We have access to the mysteries. We have been given glory. We have been made sons. We have been placed with Christ over all creation. And because of this, because of everything we read in the first three chapters of Ephesians, because of this, you are delivered from sin. You are liberated from sin. You don't have to walk in it anymore. Isn't that great news? Guess what? You are not under slavery in, in any capacity to sin at all. You could just absolutely uh, not uh, uh, be a slave to it. There's no need for it. It drags you down. It ruins your life. And yet, even though we know that, even though we, we understand all of this, we still have to struggle with this, that there is something dreadful and disgusting and hateful and rebellious inside of us that still wants to disobey God. There's a part of us that is still in rebellion to him. And we have to put that to death. And so we have to retrain our lives. We reorient ourselves toward kingdom principles so that, so that we can truly enjoy all these things that we've been given and, and see them flourish in their fullness. So what helps us to do that? Where do we go to find out what God loves and what he hates and what pleases him? How do we, how do we understand that? Well, as we saw last week, we go to his law and we obey it. And so that's why in this section, Paul is bringing out the commandments one by one and saying, this is what obedience to the law looks like in Christ. And so last week we saw he goes to the ninth commandment and he says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tear other people down with your words. Instead, if you have somebody who's accused you or lied about you, talk to God about your problems. It's this redirection. It's this retraining. Don't do this. Do this. This is what new covenant obedience to the law looks like. And then he goes to the eighth commandment. He says, don't, don't steal. Work hard and have something to give. And he goes to the sixth commandment. He says, don't murder. And every one of these laws, he makes an application to the tongue. He says, don't lash out with your tongue and commit murder with your tongue. Sacrifice yourself. Take that desire that you have to kill someone else and kill yourself. Sacrifice yourself. Die to yourself. And that's where we stopped last week. And we'll just pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 5 with the seventh commandment. And he ties the seventh and the tenth commandment together. The seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. The tenth commandment is do not covet. And he, he wraps them up together. But first, let's, let's listen to what he says about the seventh commandment. He uh, gathers in the sins of the mind and the tongue. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You see how gratitude and thanksgiving and a lack of covetousness are all wrapped up with this commandment against adultery and committing adultery. Why is that? Well, a man who is satisfied, a man who is content, a man who's giving thanks for his wife is not going to be seeking anything else. He's not going to be tempted to covet his neighbor's wife if he's satisfied with his own. So impurity and covetousness go together. The seventh and the 10th commandment are connected, but you could also say that 
all the commandments are connected, right? They're all connected in various ways. And the 10th commandment against covetousness is really the, the commandment that covers all the others. As I've said many times, all covenant breaking, all law breaking is ingratitude. It all starts with ingratitude and, and covetousness. And every sin flows out of that. Uh, ingratitude is the queen of all sins. So all this, all this straying from fidelity and anything that undermines or attacks the, the covenant of marriage or anything that presents an alternative to marriage um, is covetousness. And, it, and, and Paul forbids it. He says, may it not even be named among you. Don't even, don't even talk about it. Don't make jokes about it. Don't, don't laugh about infidelity. Men, coarse men, men that you've worked with, some, some of you guys, you know, you've been in locker rooms and you've been around coarse men. Men have a way of casually talking about women and casually talking about women's bodies in such a way that stirs up and stimulates the mind toward entertaining fornication and adultery. They do that. And, and that's what he's forbidding here. Women too. Women have their own way of talking and writing that stokes fires of impurity. And Paul says that's not fit. It's inappropriate. It's tacky. It's out of place. And as he does this over and over, he gives us his redirection. He says, don't have your life filled with filthy talk, inappropriate jokes, and cruel humor. Give thanks to God. So that don't, don't do this be grateful and thankful. Express with your words thankfulness. He, he talks about coarse jesting here. And, and at some point, I'd love to do maybe a whole series on holy humor because he who sits in the, heaven, in the heavens laughs, right? God laughs and, and God laughs at things that may make us a little bit nervous. God laughs at uh, foolishness and God laughs at wickedness. So, so what is he talking about with coarse jesting? And I don't think he's talking about in fact, I'm pretty sure he's not talking about um, just laughing at down-to-earth, common, everyday things. Because the Bible laughs. The Bible jokes about things that make seven-year-olds laugh, right? When Ehud goes into Eglon and stabs his, his dagger with his left hand, right? Uh, Ehud was left-handed. He stags his da da dagger in Eglon's fat belly, and the fat encloses over the hilt of the dagger, and is innards come out and everything that's in his intestines come out so that his servant thinks that he's using the restroom, right? The servant's knocking on the door and says something like, did, did you fall in or something like that? Uh, I think that's what it says in the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> when, when the Bible paints that picture, we're supposed to laugh at that. And that's funny. It is funny because Eglon is a wicked king and it's funny to see him uh, brought to nothing like that. You see, Satan can't laugh and he doesn't laugh at himself and Satan has no humor. Uh, it's, it's, a Christian, it's, it's a Christian virtue to be able to laugh at ourselves because we know that we are, we are frail and we know that we have um, uh, faults and, and it's, it's a Christian virtue to, to be able to stand outside of ourselves and to point out what's wrong with ourselves and to be able to laugh about ourselves. See, humor always reinforces what you believe. Humor lets us know what you, what you believe. And so if you're laughing at holy things and if you're laughing at pure things and you're laughing at good things, if you're always mocking righteousness, then we know that righteousness does not live in your heart. It's a, it doesn't have a very big priority in your mind. But if you're, a, if you're laughing at things that the Bible laughs at, if you're mocking things that the Bible mocks, then you see you have, um, you're on the same page as God. You're laughing with God. 
And that's the, that's the pagan mindset. Well, really, the pagan either laughs at everything, everything's a joke, everything's silly, even, you know, holy things and righteous things and true things. For the pagan, everything is funny or nothing is funny, right? They're just so deadly serious and nothing is funny and you can't laugh, uh, certainly can't laugh at yourself. Um, well, we need to do more work on uh, holy humor at some point. But in Course Jesting, he's talking about laughing at pure things, at holy things, at beautiful things, and, and destroying them with wicked, cruel humor. Well, he goes from the Seventh Commandment on to the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. Again, still hanging on, to, hanging on to the Seventh Commandment. He says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetous, again, goes together with idolatry and adultery because covetousness is wanting something that's more important to you than the entire kingdom of God. Covetousness is saying, I want this so much that I don't care who I hurt or what I destroy or what I lose to have it. You have seen men who have set their affections on a woman who's not their wife, and it doesn't matter what they lose. It doesn't matter what, they, uh, what pain they experience. They want this, and they want it more than the whole kingdom of God. So they lose their soul in the process. They lose their family. They lose uh, the church and the fellowship of God's people in the process. Uh, covetousness is the, this... this uh, propensity to, to be willing to risk everything for the object of our desire. Now, if the object of your desire is Jesus, you know, we want to lose everything, would, would lose anything for him. But it's this, it's this wanting something that's wicked and sinful and clearly outside the bounds of God's law that, that you have this insatiable lust to have this thing. And therefore, the covetousness I'm sorry, the covetous man has no inheritance and he loses even what he has. He isn't grateful. He isn't content with what God has given him, whether it's his station in life or his wife or his job, and, and he loses everything. And, and, and Paul says, um, he's, he says there that anyone who's an idolater, uh, an unclean person, covetous man who's an idolater, he doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance. Young men and women, uh, if, if you've tuned me out, I want to talk to you directly here for a minute. Do you want an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? Do you want an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven? Do you want all of these blessings that we've been reading about in Ephesians so far? You want to reign with Jesus. You want the blessing of a, of a godly family and a pure home and a happy marriage. Do you want an inheritance in the kingdom of God? And I, I assume your answer to that is yes, I do. Then you must stop coveting. You have to stop coveting. And you have to stop creating idols. Particularly idols of sex and the opposite sex. In our culture, internet pornography is rotting out the institution of marriage by making young men lazy and by holding young women to an unattainable and perverse standard. And in the process, it's destroying your mind, it's destroying your heart, it's twisting your affections, and it's putting you in a position, young men and young women, it's putting you in a position where if you don't stop it, if you don't cut it out, if you don't repent, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to abide with your spouse in a healthy marital relationship. 
And so I'm asking you, do you want an inheritance in the kingdom of God? Then you must put away the fornication and you must put away the, the, the lusting after something that's not yours. You want the blessings of marriage and family? Listen, no fornicator gets that inheritance. That's what God's word says. No fornicator gets it. No covetous person gets the inheritance. If you want it, you must put away these sins. And so for, for everyone, you, we, do we have a problem with coveting? Well, remind yourself of the inheritance. Go back to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Give thanks for what you've been given and you won't covet. At verse 6, he continues. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You see, not only do you lose your inheritance... You're crushed under God's judgment. That is, that's not what you were created to be. You were created to be destroyed. You were created to reign and to live with him. But see, those who break these commandments lose the inheritance and they come under the wrath of God. And that's, that's not just, oh, those are scary words. No, I want you to live. I want you to have life. I want you to have happiness and joy and reign. As Paul lays out these commandments, there's always a redirection. Cut this behavior off, start to do this. And that's what repentance is. It's not just ceasing to do an evil thing. It's to pursue goodness and godliness and holiness. Because every sinful tendency is a warping. It's a perverting of something good. So we have to redirect. We have to retrain. We have to reorient our passions and our desires toward holiness and righteousness. And there's a reason we do this is because we're part of something that's bigger than us. We are, what Paul is about to say, we are lights. Let me read again uh, 8 through 14. We're going to just look at these few verses today. uh, And when we're done, we'll close. Uh, 8 through 14. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit, or uh, some translations say the fruit of the light, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And really, it's saying the same thing, whether it's spirit or light. And I'll show you that in just a minute. For the fruit of the light or the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says... Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Notice where he starts. He starts out, he doesn't say you were in darkness and now you are in light. No, 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 that's not what he says. He says you were darkness, but now you are light. And in verse 13, he says the things that are exposed to the light become light. It seems that he's saying that anything that becomes visible, anything that falls under the light becomes light itself. Well, to understand what he's talking about here, I think we need to go back to Genesis 1 and get a handle on what the Bible teaches about darkness and light, and then we'll come back to uh, Ephesians. You could probably quote this from memory, and I'll read it again uh, from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So darkness is over the face of the waters. And if anything is lifted up over something else, that's what rules. That's what 
That's what reigns. Darkness is over the face of the waters, and so darkness reigned. It had dominion. And wherever darkness has dominion, nothing else can have dominion. If darkness has dominion, uh, darkness doesn't share its dominion. Because if you're in the dark, you can't work. You can't do your job without light. You can't bring things from a state of disorder to order without light. Have you ever tried to do an emergency car repair or have to run out and fix something in your house in the middle of the night? When it's dark outside, it's, it's super frustrating. You need lots of flashlights. You can't, you can't get enough light. So you know it's hard to take dominion. You can't take dominion in the dark, nor can you exercise judgment in the dark. It's impossible to evaluate anything in the pitch black or to render just judgment. You see, you think that you discern the right path to the refrigerator in the middle of the night with all the lights off. You think you know, but the coffee table that skins your shin shows you that your judgment is lacking when it's dark. Darkness obscures your judgment. Your judgment is impaired. And so in the beginning, darkness has dominion. And when darkness has dominion, it doesn't share it. Well, there's some good news here too. The spirit is also hovering over the face of the waters. So right away we have conflict. Darkness and light are going to square off. Now this darkness at creation, that darkness is not immoral. That darkness is not wicked, but it is inferior to the light. So in verse 3, God says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. The light that the Spirit brings is good, and now that there's light, the Lord begins to bring shape and order to the earth. He starts to arrange it and fill it. The earth is no longer formless and empty. Why is that? It's because light does share its dominion. When light has dominion, a light allows the taking of dominion uh, by others. So now when there's light, you can work and you can judge. And now God sees and makes evaluations and he makes judgments every step of creation. And he declares the creation good and eventually very good. He evaluates it. He shines his light on it and we can see what he's doing. So we skip down to verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night light to rule the, uh, the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. The lights that he sets up rule. He says it three times. They rule over the earth. They rule over the world. The lights are in the heavens and they shine down on the earth so that you and I can take dominion and make judgments. We can see what we're doing and we can work. Well, tragically, you know, Adam turns over his rule that God gave him. God, uh, God gave Adam authority on the earth, but Adam turns that over to Satan. And because of this, the darkness returns. There is a moral darkness now, a darkness of ignorance, a darkness of bad judgment, because no longer do we have man lifted up over the earth. Now we have this prince of the power of the air, Satan, and, and he reigns until Jesus comes and kicks him out. 
So if we, we take what we've learned there and go forward to John 1, we see Jesus described as the light. In John 1, you know these words as well. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, capital L, that all through him might believe. He was not that light. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness. And now you and I, as his people, we catch the light. He gives us light. So to be given light in the context of the scriptures is to become a light yourself, to reflect the light, the way that the moon is a lesser light. We call it a light, but it's reflecting the light of the sun. We're like, we're like that. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, like a city set on a hill. You're elevated like the stars in the heaven, like the sun and moon. You're elevated, so let your light shine before men. We reflect glory like the moon, like Moses did when he came down from Mount Sinai. So understanding now this, this biblical data on darkness and light, darkness prohibits dominion. Light is essential for dominion. Light gives us the ability to work, to see what we're doing, to make evaluations, to make judgments. You've said things like this before. You said, oh, I'm not sure I know too much about that. I'm, I'm kind of in the dark. I'm, I'm, what are you saying there? Well, I, I can't really see that situation well enough. It's cloudy. It's obscured. I can't see it well enough to make a judgment. When you're in the dark, you can't exercise judgment. But now in Christ, not only do you have light, you are light. Not that we generate it, but that we reflect it and shine it. Glorious things that God has created, glorious things reflect light. Precious metals. Why are they precious? Well, first of all, I think they're precious because they're shiny. They're shiny. They, uh, a, a dumb old rock is not precious. There are lots of dumb old rocks, right? They don't reflect anything. They, they don't have any glory. But a, 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 a silver or gold or brass reflect light. Gems, diamonds, beautiful uh, uh, gems reflect and play with the light. Oil, olive oil, is, uh, it, it shimmers and and it uh, reflects the light. That's why, that's why gray hair is so much more glorious, right? It's shiny, right? It reflects the light. Amen. <laughs> I, I look for one thing every Sunday. Maybe somebody can say amen about it. Uh, baldness, even more light, right? It's even more shiny. It's more glorious, right? Remember that we always, we're glorious and we reflect light like, like the moon. Whatever light we have doesn't originate with us. So we're never tempted to think that we have light in ourselves or righteousness in ourselves, but we're reflecting it. So with that in our, that in our mind and with that in our background, go back to verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So before Christ, we cast darkness all around. We made things darker and more muddled. We had no dominion. We had no judgment. Now, however, in Christ, we emit light. We are children of light. We are shining, as he says, goodness, righteousness, and truth in verse 9. He says, for the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the light, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, push back the dominion of darkness now because we are light. We have the light. And we're called on to refuse to participate in the deeds of darkness, the unfruitful works of darkness, the things 
And you know what they are. They're things that look better in the dark. They're things that you can rationalize and justify as long as nobody shines a light on them. As long as nobody shines a flashlight on it. Things that, that need the covering of darkness to hide their shame, their ugliness, the things that are unspeakable, wicked and cruel and disgusting things. Those things, he says, we have no participation in, but rather we expose them. Now, what does that mean that we expose the unfruitful works of, uh, of darkness? What, what, we, don't, we don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all kind of like journalists. We, we uh, you know, engage in gotcha journalism. We go find ugly, wicked things, and we take pictures of it, and we put it on the front page of the paper. Uh, that we see something wicked and we write a big expose about it. For the most part, and, and that may have its place, but it doesn't ever seem to really fix anything, right? We've seen a lot of gotchas in the last year in uh, the public discourse. And when that happens, the wicked deliver up a few scapegoats, uh, scapegoats and then the roaches go scurrying off to a, a different corner. Exposing the unfruitful works of darkness means exposing them to the light, shining the light of dominion, law, God's governance, shining the light of judgment on them, shining the glory of Christ on them, and they, he says, become light. Well, how do we do that? What, what, what is that? Well, there are many applications of this, and I think of, uh, you could probably think of some strategies, I'm sure, where you think of the various diseases of our society and how we need to shine light on them. Maybe it means standing in front of the abortion clinic and praying or singing psalms. Uh, that's shining light on the darkness. There are other ways that, that I'm sure you could think of. But the chief way that the church shines in the light is by being the, the church. The chief way that we shine the light is by being the church. When the church is alive in goodness, righteousness, and truth, when the church is alive in these things, the darkness evaporates and the darkness is converted to light. That's what he says. When the church turns on her beacon and lives faithfully in worship before the face of God, evil things just go. All, all these bad things and, and dark things go. At creation, the darkness does not resist the Holy Spirit. What kind of fight did the darkness put up when God said, let there be light? Did, did, the, did the darkness marshal its defenses? and raise up against the light. It can't, it didn't. It's like the rising of the sun in the morning. Just when the sun crests over the, over the horizon, just that little peak of the sun, the, the darkness starts to, it just goes, it's gone. And that's the way it does. The, light, the night has no power to resist. It's amazing how quickly the, the light works. The darkness cannot fight back against the light. And so he says, in verse 14, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You are a light. Church, we are a light. And yet, contrary to what the apostle says here, we have participation in the works of darkness. We don't expose them to the light. We cover them up. We do the things that are shameful to speak of. We break God's laws one through 10. It's like we can't break them quickly enough when we're on a tear. All the laws Paul just listed, we break. We tear each other down with our words. We forget that we're members of one another. We're lazy and we steal. We're not generous. We commit murder in our hearts. We boil in hatred. We're contentious and belligerent and bitter. 
We don't sacrifice ourselves for each other. We give in to lust and we commit adultery in our hearts. We're covetous. We're not thankful for the things that we have been given by God. We blame everyone else before we take ownership of our own sins and confess them. Does that sound like bearing light? And you see, this is the light that in, in ages past has transformed the world. You see, we're given light so that we and our neighbors can work and exercise sound judgment. It's, it's, the, light, it's the light of Christendom. It's, the, it's the, 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 the light of the gospel that has made this a pleasant world. And as the church retreats and covers up that light, the world dies. We are a beacon of hope in a dark world. And yet we take our light and we cover it with a basket and then we shovel on about 10 layers of dirt and garbage and filth and refuse. And we wonder why the world is in darkness. Why is the world dying? It's because the church is not faithful. It's because the church is not a light. Don't forget this, that God in Genesis made lights to rule. At creation, God made lights to rule. He sets his lights up over the earth to shine. Now, we don't shine in a worldly way. We don't set before the world these worldly images of success. When we shine, it always looks like the cross. We are all, all of us, all of us struggling and suffering. And you look at your life and you say, boy, this sure doesn't look like raining. This, <laughs> this doesn't look like this is dominion. But you know what? So, so is the world. The world is struggling and suffering and fighting and clawing, but they're doing it in darkness. And we have the light. And so God sets us up over this dark world as lights and so that we can show the world, this is how you struggle. This is how you suffer. This is how you die and repent and laugh and rejoice and feast and cry. This is how you do it. So we then, church, remember that we are light and we pray by God's Holy Spirit that we continue to break away everything that obscures that light, to not have fellowship in the unfruitful works of darkness, but to expose them to the light so that we may shine like stars in the heaven, as Daniel says, to walk in the light. Children of God, you are lights. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would grasp this and understand it. Give us clarity of thought that we might really understand what it means to have been seated with your son in the heavenlies so that we don't walk in darkness anymore, so we don't emit darkness, so we don't participate in darkness, but that we embrace and participate and reflect in the light. Father, strengthen us in all these ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.